0: Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. This is a rare, but important part two. We're recording with Sue Hunt, who is the author of Transitory Nature. And if you haven't listened to our part one, I would definitely recommend it. Sue and I are both in New Mexico in different places. She is up a little farther north, and she is experiencing a hailstorm right now. So you might hear what sounds like a lot of like dropping objects and items, but it really is just the weather. So welcome back, Sue.
1: Thank you so much for having me back.
0: Yeah. We got through the first four binaries in your book Transitory Nature. I'm holding the book in my hand. I will be turning the pages as such. There we go. The fifth binary is hustle and flow. And the sort of myth around this is I'm sure not lost on any of us. We thought we had to hustle through our 20s and 30s. We find in our 40s, if we've come that far, that in fact, the hustle, while much of it probably did serve a purpose and created perhaps some resilience, the hustle is no longer the main event. It really is about flow. And it really is, as you say, the subtitle of this chapter, elevated capacity. I would love to talk to you about what gave rise to this chapter and this particular binary for you and how we can start to reconcile?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think this one personally came out of my life and then also both my editors' lives, and they were adamant that it was one of the nine. And I think it's so potent because burnout seems to be the most popular topic at the moment And a year ago when I was writing the book, it was popular as well, although it sort of really is a focus for a lot of wellness circles at this point. I lived tiny for a while and that really reframed my understanding of how I was spending my time and I lived tiny after closing my businesses. So you can imagine that I had so much misaligned hustle. And then all of a sudden, I had all of this time that I had to reorganize in a beautiful way. And so I think hustle flow for me, breaking that binary, that's the personal place that it arose from.
0: Right, that makes sense. Um, To quote you on page 128. There's sort of a mock interview, I guess you would say in the book, and it The question becomes, how do we break this cycle? And you say, we start by shifting our definitions of work, productivity, and success based on the understanding that all resources are limited, as discussed, obviously, in the relation to the lack abundance binary, including our self and our time. From here, we start to create a different boundary around the use of our energy skillfully applying our attention and discernment to tap into a quote-unquote healthy hustle that swaps the endless slog of work, in air quotes, for an ethically sustainable version—a uh, vision rather of service. Let's talk about the difference between work and service for a moment, because I know that that is the reason why I continue to work in the businesses that I do. They all feel like service to me
1: they don't Mm -hmm. feel
0: like work. Tell us Mm -hmm. about that.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, there has to be this sustainable understanding that it needs to be in service to your own energy field as much as it is to those around you. So it is an understanding of reciprocity, I would say pranic reciprocity for how much you're giving to a situation and how much you're taking from a situation. And if you're constantly examining that exchange, I think there's a lot less hustle because there isn't this constant drain on the self. I need, I must have, I got to do, this will be a failure. And then that really gives you your self-image a moment to go, oh, wow, I kind of thought I would drop the ball if I made that choice, but it ended up being okay. Okay, I just proved it to myself. da 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 da, da. Right,
0: right. Mm-hmm. The definition of success is an important one. And I think I was listening, I think it was Tim Ferriss in a recent episode. He did a Q&A, which I love. And he was talking about how it's very important to qualify success. So are we talking about financial success? Are we talking about familial success, relational success? What are we talking about? And I think it's important to make this point to our listener at this moment, that if you are talking about success, let's really sort of uh, grind down and find out what kind of success are we speaking about? Because relational success is very different to uh, financial success or uh, even social media success. (laughs) You know, there's so many different ways to qualify it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point. You know, from my background, I would really look at someone's natal chart to understand where they want to feel mastery and exaltation and how success shakes out for them, because it is very unique to each of us. I think at some point, though, I would love the idea that we can find relational success also in our business and in our familial life. There's probably some bleed at a certain level of mastery.
0: Yeah. You go on on page 136 to talk about intensity and the proper, quote unquote, sort of optimal channeling of intensity. And you say, When it's channeled into the right activities, intensity, which we associate with the engaged aliveness of hustle, which I've totally been addicted to in the past, is a beautiful thing. But when intensity is exploited and misused, we end up with competitive, loose cannon energy that fuels a form of violence toward the self and bolsters the quote-unquote push-harder narrative of the hustle-slash-flow binary. I've definitely been there, and I definitely, in my mind, go there from time to time, but what I've noticed, I know this is going to sound super cliche, and I'm pretty sure we talked about it in our first chat, meditation. <laughs> totally. Totally helps with this particular sort of loose cannon energy with this brand of um, the misuse of intensity. And I do think that it's incredibly important that we talk about elevated capacity from the perspective of what are your practices, to to understand this and realize this in your own life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, my heart crumbled a little bit when you had to label meditation cliche. I understand. I'm like, no. But
0: you know what I mean? Like, we're saying it so often, and we've heard it so many times. Like, Mm -hmm. if you have that loose cannon energy, if you have a bad temper, if you have, you know, anxiety, meditation is only going to do one thing. It's going to give you the self-awareness, the sort of wedge between you and that particular persona or behavior. It's going to give you the choice. Mm Mm-hmm. As you'll have seen it so many times when you were sitting. Speak to us a little bit about your experience of this.
1: Yes. So I have a lot of Sagittarius in my chart, which is sort of a go-getter fire sign. And it's juxtaposed with a bunch of water. So there was a lot of burnout cycles in my 20s of understanding how I was pushing too hard and why. And a lot of that was through mental construct. And then I sort of drug my body along. And I had to figure out how to lead with body as opposed to mental construct. And of course, we're going to need some intensity. And I really wanted to include this in Hustle Flow because I think in the New Age spirituality space, sometimes we lean towards peace as passiveness. And I remember I had a fellow Buddhist meditator ask me, how did you write this book and not be attached to its outcome? And I remember saying, well, I'm kind of low-key angry now. Deep, deep down, and I had to figure out how to channel that intensity in a productive way of service. And if it wasn't for being in contact with that distaste or frustration or anger or intensity or destructive emotion, I'm not sure that there would ever be a structure out in the world like transitory nature.
0: Right. That's really interesting. Actually, funny to you say that. And then this is followed by a whole section of sort of weeding the field where. We're encouraged to go into the hustle narrative that was taking place in our childhood. Were grades amplified? Was hard work, homework? Were you compared to somebody else, which I was? All the things that sort of you can smile at now with a gentle sense of humor and a lot of self-compassion and realize that, oh, my God, I totally don't need to be doing this. I don't need to be living in this child's body anymore, this child's psyche anymore. You weed the field, and then you give us really awesome three points on page 140. Expanding our elevated capacity asks us to develop three qualities. Attention, intuitive efficiency, and proper energy use. Do you feel like talking about those three, or shall I read to you
1: from your own book, which I know is so sweet? (laughs) we can do both or whatever you feel comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, I think this was my expanded definition of upaya, skillful means, and to really sort of lay that out and have that be a daily inventory of skillful means.
0: Right. Attention, undivided focus on your inner motivations, intentions, and personal trickery. Hello. Truly contemplating the ways your actions and speech have sought to enhance misaligned hustle and exploring your addiction to asserting yourself in a way that is outdated and related to past concepts of oppressive success. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just so, the way you verbalize it is so adroit. There's not much more to say, really. Intuitive efficiency, you say, is a higher level of mind that can be applied to taking actions that align with our personal definition of success. Okay, taking actions that align with our personal definition of success. Guidance that is no longer contaminated by motivations to protect an identity that hides in the hustle. And the hustle here, I circled this particular end of this paragraph because I think I live here. The identity that hides in the hustle, you write, dash, based on busyness, comma, being the best, comma, or, quote, having it all. Mm-hmm. Ooh, It's yeah. eerie, a little bit eerie. I like being the best, <laughs> and I enjoy having it all. And I do feel like I have it all, even though I know I don't have it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that motivation uh, to protect that identity— that has helped me in many ways, and it still is slightly confounding, which I know is a good sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it will ever fully dissolve, because that is also you channeling intensity, right? So I think it is such a beautiful thing to see it rise and fall and make sure that that phenomena doesn't attach us to misaligned hustle.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Got it. Proper energy use.
1: Finally. Yeah. This one is tricky. You know, so so many people come into the space of like I have kids and I have X to do, and then I'm trying to run my own business. Oh yeah. And did I tell you that I also have a job while I'm trying to launch my own business? And then, you know, my husband travels X amount of weeks during the year and there's just so much moving of puzzle pieces to even figure out what our inner yearning is and what we want to commit to and say, and then what we want to say no to.
0: What it feels like to me when I look at proper energy use before we go on to the next binary is to think about this as elevating our capacity. Proper energy use is really just looking, I feel, one day at a time.
1: Definitely. I mean, it has to be right. Sometimes I'm sort of raising my hand here. I wake up and I go, oh, these are all the things I was supposed to do today.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm going to get
1: one and a half of them done. So which one is it and what's the half?
0: (laughs) Because someday for our listener, success is going to feel like you took a nap. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And some days success is going to be the three phone calls that you made. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yes. Or the awesome parenting that you did when your kid fell and you didn't freak out hmm exactly you, know, you just held it together okay i like that a lot and that makes more sense to me and i also feel affirmed with this sort of uh thinking about that as a day-to-day
1: enterprise rather than here's how i do it boom you know mm-hmm. yeah and then it makes skillful means very personal and actually practicable
0: yeah it does it does the sixth binary root crown Subtitle, integrated being. For nobody else is this more important than somebody engaged in a spiritual, quote-unquote, profession. The bypassing is still very evident in many corners of this particular world, this spiritual world. And there's also a lot of folks who are really super integrated, super inspiring to many of us. Can you talk a little bit about what that binary gives rise to when it's imbalanced and how we can start to move toward an integrated being?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen very clearly in the last decade, especially in Western yoga, the demystification of the guru seat, where we've seen a lot of teachers' private lives hit the public ceiling and it's like, oh shit, what did I buy into? What did I follow? Is this the totality of what I thought I was worshiping? You know, the identity that I've been wearing for X amount of years. And I really wanted to basically give a guide for spiritual seekers to one, raise their own spiritual sovereignty so they can really understand the relationship they're getting into as a subordinate or as a teacher, and also break down that hierarchical model as we swim about in the Aquarian age so that it isn't as um, abusive, you know, using that word on purpose.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm not going to name names. I've just sat here while I was listening to you thinking, oh, should we just do it? And I'm not. I decided I don't want to. I don't want to put that energy onto this episode at all. Um, But what I do want to say is I think we can all learn lessons from the people in whom we've placed our trust and our uh, energy, resources, money. We can learn a lesson from how they ended up, I'm thinking particularly, of several white men (laughs) in this space. Um,
1: It's across the board, really.
0: Oh, it is across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true that's just where my head goes. The root crown binary arises anytime our earthly issues demand action and clarity, but we instead employ (laughs) debilitating avoidance through layers of intellectualization, ignoring our embodiment and jumping into the Pollyanna clouds, or we polarize it at the other end, chasing superficial fixes within the root trinity of money, sex, or power, often believing that by securing certain expressions of these energies we'll be quote-unquote safe, which keeps us stalled in a misaligned route and unable to reach the inspired insights of the crown. Hopefully that makes sense because that one paragraph, I circled it when I read the book and it helped me to understand, okay, 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 this is precisely what we're talking about. The root end connects us to the bottom three chakras, earthly needs, you know, basic needs, emotional needs. And then the crown energy is really sort of the realized end of things, intuitive, enlightened, infallible, as you say, psychic downloads you know, manifestation practice in their highest, most effective form. All of those things are part of the crown. To integrate them is what I want our listener to walk away with an idea of, Sue. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that sort of integration. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
1: I think it was really important in sort of my own consciousness process to This is sort of the most, using air quotes, spiritual chapter of the book, where we're not dealing with sort of didactic questioning all of the time. And I wanted to include money, sex, power, and how to really understand the integration of those vehicles in a conscious, positive way as a spiritual seeker in our own bodies and as we engage in sangha or with a teacher. And so sometimes we separate those things as if money, sex, power are dirty or a lower vibrating or unacceptable. And if we really step back from the whole spiritual hierarchical community, it's like without those things, it wouldn't actually be moving, evolving. That's the way that our bottom three chakras are interacting all of the time out in the world. And then so much misunderstanding I saw of crown energy, that it is something that we can manipulate, uh, through, earthly means. And really it's something that we ultimately receive where it's an actionless space and we're manipulating really from the throat down in how we're moving prana. And then from the throat up, it's out of the realm of even intellectual manipulation, right? It's something that drops in as opposed is created from the self-will.
0: Right. That makes sense too. And when integrated... Um, Can you speak a little bit to how we move through the world, how we move through our daily lives? What are the signposts for our listener?
1: Yeah, it's going to sound kind of funny, but I think you spend a little more time on the quiet side where you're fully observing and there isn't always a need to assert righteousness or assert a power dynamic or say that you're the most realized in the room and you're delegating advice at large. You know, there's actually a step away from that seat because there isn't a protection of power. There's a sharing of it.
0: Well, that requires
1: a little silence, and that's wow. tricky. I think sometimes for, our, yeah. we're always engaged. You know, we're always communicating all the time, especially with our virtual world now.
0: I dare say that the shift from the protection of power to the sharing of it is key to most of the success of the people that I know and respect who have had professional fiscal success. That's the key. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are tons of people who don't share the power, who just wield it, who do have success, but their success is never integrated. It's always kind of sketchy and icky. You want to make that face, the sort of gritting teeth emoji. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, I can <laughs> definitely feel that and see that. And I think that when you are at rest more in silence, then you have more access to crown energy of, is this a reciprocal place for me to actually share power with another? You know, does that feel elevated in a way that's of service to both of us?
0: Right. Page 154. Super fascinating to me. You have a few myths, of course, in each chapter for each binary, and one myth really blew the top off of everything that I do. It's called the grounding down myth. You need more grounding in your life. You need to get back into your body, walk on the earth barefoot, eat more root veggies to ground down. The overuse, you say, of the word grounding as a remedy for our culture's root imbalances has seeped into every single aspect of our wellness world. Okay? Talk to me a little bit about where this comes from for you, and then I want to talk to you about the result that has come through for me in my work, thanks to this chapter and this particular myth. Okay, perfect. Perfect.
1: So in sort of my private client space, I noticed that that seemed to be this panacea. And in my meta, I'm hearing, oh, no, honey, we need to get the online bank account out. I'm not a financial coach, but I really wish I was in this moment because we don't need any more, you know, Valerian on the feet. We actually need to go look at how you're spending money and your cost of living, right? But there wasn't this intuitive Jump to understand really the structure of our lives as part of grounding. There seemed to be a lot of practices that weren't really getting at the root of each person's issue, pun intended. And it seems as though anxiety or fast moving energy was very demonized in a certain way, when really, if you're a zodiac sign like an Aquarius or a Gemini, holy schmoly, we better learn how to master that because that intuitive, fast-moving connection is your skill set. It doesn't need to be slowed down. It needs to be kept up with. And so it was a myth that I was just hoping to break, not that it's totally false. And I hope you can sort of hear my satire a little bit in some of these myths. When I read them back, sometimes I'm like, whoa, Sue, you definitely had your fangs out there. You know, but at the
0: No, second- I, I read the satire. I feel them. Okay, good. I mean, we talk about- not just valerian, we talk about essential oils on your feet, we talk about all of these things, and yes, of course, there are many, many capillaries on the soles of your feet. But I think the emphasis on grounding that we place is unfounded, and the way that you have brought us back to, hey, actually, groundlessness sometimes, like I've just had three days in a training that I'll tell you about another time, that made me feel kind of weirdly both groundless and grounded, and made me question everything. And that was actually the, I hate to use this word again, but that was the grounds for a bunch of new ideas and new trajectories for me.
1: Hmm. I love hearing that. Yes, groundlessness of that's when we're actually eroding the walls that have kept us imprisoned. And sometimes that's very uncomfortable in our embodiment. But I didn't want spiritual seekers to just see that as a juxtaposition to growth or an issue that, oh, I'm so misaligned, I've got to get this sorted out, or why don't I just get grounded? Then sometimes I'm like, no, 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 go to the edge, go to the edge, go to the edge.
0: Mm. 155, you say, rather than adding to the situation with more grounding techniques or products... On a subtle body level, we must understand why we feel groundless to begin with and what interpersonal and intergenerational causes have created this feeling, i.e. it might not just be yours. (laughs) It's also important to discern between, you say, groundlessness as an anxious state of mental confusion and bodily discomfort caused by feeling untethered from our own existence, and the groundlessness that is actually a catalyst for growth. The feeling of partnering with all that is unknown and beyond our control. And I think there's so much wisdom. That's like a very old lady in you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she likes to hang out and sit on the front porch (laughs) and
0: drink tea. I want to sit with her one day. I mean, that's real medicine right there. Like, we don't have to know what's happening. I don't have to have a plan right now. I can feel groundless and let that be the beginning of a new
1: growth just like a little plant like a little seedling Mm -hmm. yeah so beautiful and then that's really new creative meta that's entering you know it's when we register something in the frontal lobe it's usually because it's a perception we've previously had and so when something feels radically new it's like cannot compute cannot compute Right. So instead of this anxiety feeling, it's like, ah, something new. Of course I can't compute. Let me listen. Let me listen.
0: Yeah. Which brings me to, I think it's an important list. It's a hard list to read for my listener and me, probably. Um, The Root Crown Escapism Checklist on page 161. (laughs) Alongside our investigation of root deprivation, which I would encourage our listener to look at in the previous, between pages 155 and 160, we must also work to examine escapist versions of crown energy that protect us from dealing with our actual root issues. Uh, A little farther forward, take an inventory of the crown escapism archetypes listed below, noticing which might arise in your personality aspects. The intellectual... Over intellectualizes everything emotions, decisions, relationship dynamics, beats interpersonal situations to death by continually discussing them. Lots of lip service, very little action. Strokes the ego by being the smartest and the most well spoken. Two, the seeker reads every book on the market, name drops, uses big words, big spiritual words, rather, <clears throat> and likes to cite all of the study programs and teachers they follow. Three, <laughs> The commercial mystic. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm wearing a dress today that really calls me out here. Looks the part (laughs) with flowy clothes and tattoos of spiritual iconography. Whoops. Art directs picture-perfect rituals and uber-spiritual gatherings for social media. Signs up for expensive courses, claims to be constantly tapped in, quote-unquote. Frames each root-deprived side hustle as another epic download. Our listener, do not be mad at Sue. Where it's okay, I can handle
1: it. Keep digging. Tongue in,
0: yeah, I mean, there's tongue-in-cheek, and there's also some real truth here. Like, I mean, I'm in the same boat. I have to watch it all the time. Is it too perfect? is it too pretty? You know, I have to really watch it, period. And all of us do. Four, the skeptic always questions in search of hard and fast facts that are rooted in the finite predictability of the material world, needs oversimplifications and straightforward definitions has difficulty mobilizing creative energy and trusting parts of themselves beyond logic, ignores the emotional and spiritual layers of life, lacks the levity of playfulness and is quite pessimistic in outlook. It's interesting, you know, you you say to your reader, you might find it quite embarrassing to identify with any of these archetypes, but the more clearly we commit to seeing these tendencies within ourselves, you say, the more we can both tend the root deprivation that lurks beneath, and access a receptive crown. There is a way forward here. These are just the funny sort of oversimplified exaggerations, but the truth is a little bit of each one of these lives in each of us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Definitely. I'm grateful that you brought it out for real. Like It really helps me to laugh at myself and to check myself since I read this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes me excited because I think humor is a great tool in our spiritual journey. And sometimes that isn't always honored or even available. Sometimes we're so serious in ceremony or da 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 da.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L M N T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet, helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, bogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D R I N K L M N T.com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link drinkelement.com forward slash elena yeah we are the eighth binary is karma and dharma self-will and destiny we could do a whole episode on this one frankly but i like the idea of you defining karma and dharma for our listener and talking a little bit about how to keep this in mind without letting it run our lives
1: yeah that's a great point and a great way to open the conversation about karma and dharma So karma doesn't just happen to us, it happens through us. And this chapter in particular, I break it down into the three different types of karma. So Sanchitta, Parabdha, and Kriyaman, so that you really understand the vehicles of what is changeable, what is unchangeable, what we have control over in our current incarnation and I give options if you believe in reincarnation or not, so that the mental inquiry itself just doesn't die if you don't believe in reincarnation. So there's space here for many people from religious backgrounds to engage in karma. I think the root of karma is kri, which means to always be creating. You know, we might be doing that consciously or unconsciously, and I don't think we'll ever know. Hundred percent, what's what? As really the karmic pool balls hit, and a situation presents itself in front of us, if we created that consciously or unconsciously, there might be an inkling. But then again, we don't need the ego sort of wrapping its talons around the whole thing all of the time, hence creating more karma. Dharma is depicted in many Buddhist lineages via image as this moving wheel, a dependent chain of origination meaning that consciousness itself is actually to be of service to your own evolution and others evolution. And that wheel interfaces with the karmic wheel and many of the images and iconography. So they're really not separate at all. And D is the root of Dharma, which means to sustain, right? So it doesn't just mean your purpose or what the work that you do out in the world. It actually means the metacognition or meta-understanding of you that sustains your own creative process. Wow. That's a really nice way to put it. I've never heard it put like this. Yeah. It gives it a little more, like I, I kept making the motion with my hands where my fingers are interlocked. So it's just this constant immersion between you and everything happening around you.
0: Yes. Got it. We have so many of us sort of embedded in our thinking this punishing Godhead
1: Mm
0: -hmm. who will either give or take away God's plan. How do we reconcile that very long held sort of
1: belief? I think that that's a little bit of the misappropriation of Eastern teachings of karma in a different worldview inside our Judeo-Christian West for the most part. And that takes a little bit of grappling with to not just turn karma into this punishing aspect and to understand like, okay, I'm getting punished. Well, why? Okay, this is kind of unfortunate. I'm not denying that. Thanks for delivering it. Now let me figure out how to co-create with this unfortunate experience, instead of just swinging to the destiny end, which is predestination or God's plan.
0: Yeah. You say that developing awareness around these many layers of our sort of understandings begin to unlock what else is possible in terms of how we hold things so tightly. The myth of self-improvement, I think, is something that we need to look at here coming toward the end. Um, we have all of these facts about us. You, This is what you reference as prarabdha karma. Defined in the Upanishads, the first layer The ripening of previously planted fruits that are coming to unchangeable fruition in this current incarnation or iteration. Examples are our family units or lack thereof, whatever situation into which we were born. Upper limits of mental and physical performance, like realistic limits. Genetics, physical attributes, astrological signatures. These are all like real facts. These are cement, you know how do you work with this because there is a myth that we can just improve ourselves and i don't think that that's the point anymore after reading this book
1: yes i mean a lot of suffering is created really bouncing up against the our own stellar imprint or the unchangeable aspects of our karma i mean so much suffering is created inside our own containers attempting to do that I want to be a sinner. I want plastic surgery. I hate my body. I hate my mom. I wish I had a mom. Da, 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 da. I mean, we can go on and on about some of the circumstances that are unchangeable. And there's an understanding within us that this is how I know myself. And I know that might sound grim, You know, but if we didn't have these unchangeable stakes in the ground in certain ways, there wouldn't be much callback out into the universe of how we recognize ourselves. And of course, that perception can change over time. And that's when suffering, we can really mitigate it within our systems, but not until we really say, you know what, this is something that I cannot change. Therefore, why am I banging my head against the brick wall?
0: Right, right. Freeze things up considerably, I would say. (laughs) You know, there's the just surrender myth, which is also a very serious myth that is too rife in our society. I love the personal inquiry practice in this chapter. I really appreciated the work of uncovering karma through your natal chart. And even though I'm not super attached to astrology, I appreciate the fact that there was a very certain organization of things when you emerged into this world. So why don't we just look at that and see what that points to and maybe get some new information?
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. Some new information and some understanding, too, of like, oh, yeah, no wonder that felt kind of out of place or, wow, I have been trying to, you know, shove this energy into a situation that isn't going to work.
0: Also, for the listener, there is a really beautiful, brief enough and also comprehensive enough description of what all the houses mean, all the signs mean in Sue's language, which by now you probably are resonating well with the way that she speaks and the clarity of her intent. So I think you'll enjoy that too. That's uh, coming toward the end of the eighth binary. But the ninth might be my favorite. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yeah. The graphic, of course, is amazing, too. If you're a listener, if you buy the book, you're going to really appreciate the graphics that are on the facing pages for the first page of each chapter. Oh, That's God. a Taos artist, actually. Is it? Yeah, yeah. But what's the name of this person, if you care to share?
1: Talia Miglaccio. I'm so bad at pronouncing I her know, name. Miglaccio. I you know her, Miglaccio. You got it. I okay, good. You're way better
0: at Italian than me. Talia. She has the <laughs> coolest tattoos of all time. Yeah, totally, totally. And her work is incredible. The ninth binary, finally, listener is waiting. Past and future. And the subtitle is Claire Sentience. Teach us about this,
1: Sue. Yes. You know, I'm a big fan of Joe Disperenza and a lot of the neuroscience work that's been put out in the last really five to seven to ten years around the meditative mind and that was definitely a book by the Dalai Lama. I think it's called The Mind's Own Physician. Loved it. Read it in like 2009, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. And was just like, there's a lot of science and there's a lot of facts understanding how to break the past future binary. And we really talk a lot about presence, presence and In the last 10 years of being in New Age spirituality, I felt like presence really has lost its potency because we just use that word so much. It's such a part of our vernacular, it's almost overused. And so I really wanted to go into a deep, deep exploration of what meditative mind looks like out in the world and that it's actually moving us beyond the idea of presence and giving us access to many different layers of consciousness that doesn't just mean presence through our five senses. And so that's where Claire sentience came to be.
0: Got it. There are so many times, especially since my mom died, where I'm in a situation or I'm listening to music or smelling something and time warps and I feel like I'm a little girl again or I feel like I'm much older and she's with me or all these very interesting sort of shifts in the matrix happen. And I feel very connected to this whole exploration, and I feel like I'm right in the baby stages mm-hmm. Yeah, of thinking about it. I mean,
1: I have yeah. like a smile on my face listening to you, you know, oh. of just like, yes, like that time warping moment is Yes. like, are we present or are we fully open to so many different streams of information that aren't just coming through our sense portals when we have those little blips on the radar?
0: Dude, that's a quote right there. I sort of want my listener to press the back button.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Listen to that again.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I will be listening to it again for sure. You start the chapter in such a beautiful way. On page 231, you write the word quiet. With eyes closed, the glory of the sun's morning rays through the window is felt as the sensation of warmth on the skin. Legs crossed, this posture is a dear old friend worn with care drawing the senses inward to explore the vast landscape of perception, feeling like a speck in the sea of it all, expanding into vastness, boundaries of self blurred. This is by far one of my favorite moments in the whole book, and you write, there is no doing here, only to be undone. And this is where this binary gets resolved.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: Like meditation is where the binary gets resolved. There's no more past. There's no more future. There's only right now. And if you notice a single thought at all, you're in one of those places.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a cool way to think about it. And I think it gives access to a different level of mind because just how we were saying, you know, 40 minutes ago, we even have to say meditation might even be cliche or saying that might even be cliche now. And there's this understanding of when you're actually meditating, like you're in full newness all of the time. It isn't about the mantra. It isn't about the technique. It isn't about the headphones plugged into the ears. You know, it's this complete dissolution of self
0: You talk a lot in this chapter about the associative architecture of our lives and how that impacts our ability to get through the myths of past and future and into sort of optimizing this binary. Can you tell us a little bit about the myths? I'm going to read them to you. The be present myth. This is such a good one.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so I think a book I read a long time ago, it's called The Mind Wide Open, and it's very dense and very thick about research on rats and our amygdala and our insula and our understanding of how we're processing sensory data and really the extreme capacity of the human to understand consciousness meta beyond just the five senses And so that was a huge influence on breaking down just be present and also taking really complex research and with my water sign nature, trying to make it more empathetic, more digestible, more wearable in your own embodiment.
0: (sighs) And breaking the bonds of your associative architecture, you say, we begin to investigate how quickly our current ego structure likes to assert its outdated opinion upon a situation, looking at where we're triggered in the present by some overwhelming memory or where we project a past version of self into the future. Our aim here is just to become more sensitive to all of that. Is that true?
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Because sometimes, right, that projection is going to fit and it's going to be very needed and very valuable. And sometimes it's going to be very limiting
0: Then you talk a lot about the sort of imprints that this, even this cliche, be present, has left on us. And that has a risk, I feel, of bringing us to a place of sort of self-flagellation and disdain for ourselves because we can't actually be present because something is too hard. How do we reconcile that? Mm, Great
1: point. And that immediately triggers a thought in my mind of, great, you know, avoidance isn't always evil. Sometimes it's necessary and safe considering what we're dealing with in our central nervous system. And we really only integrate or expand when our central nervous system has high, high resilience. And we can't always have access to our you know, deepest trauma or our deepest imprint in a way that can be integrated if there isn't high resilience. So instead of unpacking something that we don't have access to yet, we go build the resilience.
0: That's interesting and very helpful and very rational. The other myths. Let me turn the page. The time heals myth. That's a tough one. Yeah, that is a tough one. Mostly because I do feel that it does. In some respects, getting distance from a hard situation really does help me. Like, I'm no longer disabled by the death of my mom as I was when she first died or in those months after. But I do have to agree with you that it is a myth because I'm still sad.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I still hear her voice almost every morning when I sit down to meditate. I look into her eyes. I have a picture of her here with my son. and Oh, I look into her eyes and I just melt daily. And I hear her, Elena. I hear her voice, I hear her answering the phone, the way she goes, hello. You know, time doesn't heal that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, but that is, like, that's a timeless practice, right? You're actually with her vibration at that moment. Yes. Yeah, we don't want to lose access to that.
0: No, 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 no. Certain songs that I listen to from the 70s, too, when I hear them, Many of those songs I haven't heard since I was standing in my childhood home with her next to me doing her little dance, (laughs) you know, and she Mm -hmm. and I are together again. Mm -hmm. Such a cool understanding, Sue. I really appreciate the way that you've written this out.
1: Good. Yes. I mean, I think it's great to just check our understanding of how we're processing and that it doesn't have to be on a timeline and sometimes it needs to be and sometimes it also needs to be pure timelessness and we don't have to always wear time as a burden
0: you say on page 241 how do we heal the past and heal you have in quotes which i think is interesting We cannot shift our own transmissions until we fully and wholeheartedly acknowledge that our perception of the past is alive and well within us, deep in our cellular structure. By first giving the totality of your lineage a place to live within you, you can then begin to work with it in your lived experience. And this is, as you go on to say, this is what active meditative inquiry is all about. That's brilliantly said. Thank
1: you. Yeah. You know, there's this thing that I hear a lot in the meta and my surrounding environments of, oh, when that thing is complete or when I have healed that karma, it'll no longer come up. And you know, that sort of holds our suffering at an arm's length, as opposed to, you know, when my old disordered eating comes up, that comes from my matriarchal lineage. It's like, Oh yeah, you, Hey, Oh fucking fine. I'll make some space at the table for you. Instead of just holding it in our pain body or far, far away from our present moment.
0: Wow. Just to bring that to a little more fullness for our listener You go on to say that through active meditative inquiry, we can alter the expression of our structural inheritance with every thought, perception, and action we take. But step one is to give the analytical mind a task, beginning with this, the intergenerational osmosis process, in which the positive and negative columns eventually collapse into one another And we start redefining our relationship to the living past within each of us. Acknowledgement of our living past moves us beyond whatever our associative architecture is and leaves us with a limitless sense of the possibilities that can unfold. I have definitely experienced this at a certain fork in the road. I could have been like, well, everybody loves drugs. And so I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to smoke more pot. And almost none of the things that I've created would have happened, you know. But instead, I looked at it with a sense of humor and said to myself, okay, this is funny. Like, my line is full of drugs. And I was brought into the world under a haze of basically an opiate, (laughs) Demerol. And of course, I like it. Of course I like that feeling, but I I now have seven years of sobriety, and I can see that that one choice, the integration of the fact that everyone just dose themselves with prescriptions and other drugs, and to make the choice at a certain point that that's definitely a part of me, I feel it, there's a reason why I love everything, and everything that sort of slows the body. And to accept that as part of my lived, living past in my body, to have a laugh about it, and to even get cool with, you know, my child is going to be experimenting. I have to be cool with that too and work with that. You know, that has changed the energy of that lineage completely.
1: Yes. Whoa. Well, I definitely like your entire transmission will be different now when your child starts to experiment. Right. That's
0: it. It already is. Yeah. I already, I'm already working with it and it's beautiful because I'm very accepting and I'm very much like, great, you know, do your thing. I'm here. I am a safe space. I will never, ever, ever, ever punish you or get you in trouble, in air quotes, if you tell me the truth. If any of your friends get into trouble, I am right here. Call me if it's 3 a.m. I will have my phone if you're not in the house. You call me. I will get in the car and come. I will not ask questions. I am a safe space for you and your people. Mm -hmm.
1: That's beautiful.
0: But that came because I hadn't read this book yet. But now that I've read the book, I see what happened. And that came because I said, okay, this is the truth of what my past looks like. So for our listener, whatever the truth is, really accept it. Like, Tara Brock's book, Radical Acceptance, is also a really good one, too, for this. Accept it. And then, as Sue says, through active meditative inquiry, we can alter the expression of our structural inheritance with every thought, every perception, every action. You know? There doesn't need to be this punitive situation. There doesn't need to be punitive of self or punitive of another. There needs to be— That's so uh, important. Of right.
1: another, yeah, like especially when we're yes. looking at our intergenerational inheritance. And I wanted to call it osmosis because there was a point in my early 20s when I was just meditating so much and I was listening to a Sensei Ka's book this morning and he said, Christians love God, Buddhists love lists. And I just started laughing out loud because I used to make all these lists of you know, my mom's best attributes, my grandmother's best attributes, my dad's best attributes, my grandfather's best attributes, and then all their worst attributes. And then I'd circle the list and be like, all right, we're bringing the best to fruition. And I got to check the weird stuff. I got to check it at the door.
0: <laughs> right, right. Bring the best to fruition. Mm-hmm.
1: And sometimes when you look back into our inheritance and, you know, intergenerational trauma, it's definitely a hundred percent real, but then we also need a balance point of, but A, B, C, and D were brilliant. And that's also encoded into my DNA.
0: Totally. I was talking to my dad last night, my kid and I were playing piano for him. He's a pianist. And I don't know why we got on this topic at one point of fishing and he was saying, Oh my God. When I was six, I was brought out on a fishing boat and I never want to do it again. And we were like, what, what? He was like, well, I couldn't stand putting the hook into these cute little worms. (laughs) And I couldn't stand a boat full of like dead fish. That was terrible to me. It was awful. And I realized, you know, there were many things that I took from my dad, but that is one of the most beautiful things because I can't stand stuff like that. I don't want to kill anything. I even have a worm farm in my garage right now. I love them so much. They're like my little friends. You know what I mean? For our listener, I, I bring this up because I think it's important to honor both the kind of, uh, in your perception, the less than savory uh, hand-me-downs of your lineage, as well as the wonderful things. You know, the thoughtfulness of my father, the ambition and clarity of my mother, the ways in which they were both so kind to the seemingly inconsequential, you know, people who were judged to be inconsequential by others. They were always with those folks, you know. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that you want to look towards, too. And remember, don't just focus on the shitty things and get used to laughing about them like Focus also on the things that are wonderful that you have brought forth in your own being. So good. I'm so glad that we did this second round because I really wanted to get through the rest of the book with you um, for our listener. The book, once again, is called Transitory Nature. I know we don't know each other well, but I'm really proud to be a colleague of yours on this path. I think this is, you know, if you're anywhere in the spiritual community or practice or work, This is an important book for you, if you're listening, and take it slowly. One of the best things that I read at the very, very beginning of this book, and I'll let Sue talk about this in a moment, is her real request to take the book in very small, slow increments. So you take one binary and spend a few months with it, at least one month, and really get to know all the facets of it so that you can see and have these little laughs at yourself about where you are denying things or making things up or, you know, putting on a coat that doesn't fit you and reconfigure, show up the way you really, truly want to show up, not in the way that you think
1: you have to show
0: up. Sue, anything else to
1: add? Well, I mean, you've just been an archetype, I think, as a teacher for so long in so many ways. And I value... Everything you've put out into the world. I was thinking about it actually. I worked the door at Dora, one of the classes you taught at Urban Zen. I couldn't take the class because I had to like <laughs> help with people with props and all of those things. I know it's amazing. Wow. And then another sidebar I didn't want to interrupt you, but your speakeasy that you did on addiction at Wonderlust. Uh, phenomenal writing. I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like just so embodied and so guttural and so real. So I'm also honored. I'm so honored to be on both of these episodes. And when Ruby said she had sent you the book, I was like, ah! Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Great, thanks. You know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I get
0: books a lot. This one went right onto my desk. I could feel it right away.
1: Well, I appreciate that very, very much.
0: Yeah. Between you and Ruby, um, and by the way, Ruby is Ruby Warrington of numinous books. Mm
1: -hmm. Aries to the max. Yes,
0: fantastic. (laughs) um, Longtime colleague from New York and friend and very wise soul. Between the two of you, you did a wonderful job on keeping this book very close to home and relevant and concise which I really appreciate.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you. And we will be in touch, and I can't wait to hopefully see you this summer.
1: Yeah, I would love that. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you.